Welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Daum. This is the 17th edition of this podcast. It's not an especially ceremonious number, but I thought I'd do something a little bit different this week. Instead of speaking with a guest, I thought I'd speak to you directly, not just about the podcast and what I've learned from talking with all these guests these last few months, but what I'm thinking about the nature of talking in general. I'm recording this on Monday, November 9th, just about 48 hours since the presidential election was called for Joe Biden. At least a week will have passed before most of you hear this, and I can imagine that some of the contours of this moment will have changed a bit by then, both in terms of media framing and in many of our own minds. But I wanted to reflect a bit on the last four years and share with you some of my thoughts about where we are now, or at least where I am. I'm trying not to use the royal we quite as much, though no big promises there. I want to talk about what I'm hoping can maybe start to be different when it comes to the way important subjects, and even not so important subjects, get talked about and in turn listened to and understood and engaged with. So I'm going to start by telling you where I was exactly four years ago. I was here in New York City, where I'd moved about a year earlier from Los Angeles after my marriage broke up. I was supposed to be writing a book. That book was going to be about the current state of feminist expression and certain generational divides therein. Its initial title was You Are Not a Badass. It was a sort of manifesto slash self-interrogation about, let's just say, some of the more performative qualities of third and fourth wave feminism, especially as it was filtered through social media. Now, the Me Too movement wouldn't come along for another year, but I would have said that by 2014, we'd seen increasing traction coming from a message that said that the world, even the industrialized Western world, had never harbored more misogyny. The actual facts, of course, showed that the opposite was true. In the Western world, women, in the aggregate and by most metrics, have never been safer, better educated, more economically empowered. And men, by many of the same metrics, have never been doing worse. But part of the reason social media is so addictive is its magical ability to make ambient perception almost indistinguishable from empirical reality. Spend even a few hours on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter, and you'll see how they take personal anecdote, not to mention neologisms like mansplaining, and offer up a kind of crowdsourced validation that then elevates anecdote into something we're supposed to see as universal truth, often by dressing it up as lived experience. A man was rude to me on the street, therefore men are rude to women on streets. It goes on and on. Now, this can be a comfort, not to mention a distraction from loneliness and feelings of alienation. God knows I've relied on this formula to explain away my own frustrations many times. I probably turn to it in some way every day. But its relationship to actual truth is usually pretty tenuous. That's because perception is only perception. It may feel like everything, but it's only one thing, and it's subject to change from moment to moment. Now, this whole idea is often boiled down to the shibboleth, facts are not feelings, which is true and can be useful in a psychological context. But in its common context today, facts are not feelings is usually employed as a glib retort. And that's why I wanted to explore, in book length, the full dimensions of this contradiction. 
Why? In an era where women are not only doing better than at any time in the history of human civilization and are in fact surpassing men in all kinds of ways, are so many people so invested in the idea that things are precisely the opposite? How did misperception become seen as a truism? Since when is femaleness itself such an encumbrance that just getting out of bed in the morning, getting dressed, going to work is such an act of defiance against the patriarchy that it qualifies you as a badass? Why have feelings been commodified and memified into conventional wisdom? What are we getting out of this narrative? And how is this anything but an insult to human intelligence itself? And since we're talking about women, how is this anything but a form of sexism against ourselves? Anyway, I'd begun writing that book. I'd begun writing it assuming that Hillary Clinton would soon be elected president of the United States. Under such exultant conditions, the state of womanhood would be regarded as a resilient enough institution that it could withstand a little critique. Spoiler alert, I was wrong. In retrospect, I might have been proven wrong even if Clinton had won the election. For one thing, she would have been the target of enough misogynistic ankle-biting that it would have been all too easy to conclude that American women were still an oppressed class, despite having won for a president. Another reason I might have been wrong is because by the fall of 2016, the memification of everything, the debasement of thought itself, was a runaway train. The arrival of Trump meant the departure of just about any complexity of thought, and not just because the man himself was incapable of it. Within the political left in general and the cultural elite in particular, there was a sense that we were now in such a state of civic emergency that we needed all hands on deck. We needed to stop getting hung up on details or contradictions or our own internal conflicts and join in this effort that was being called the resistance. More precisely, since social media was effectively the engine of this effort, we needed to get behind the hashtag resistance. My book began to turn a few corners. It was no longer just about hyperbole and reductive thinking in feminism. It was about hyperbole and reductive thinking in, well, everything. It was about the rise of wokeness, its uses and abuses alike. It was about how literature that had changed my life as a young person and shaped my sensibility as a writer was now barely tolerated by my own students because of its perceived problematicness. It was about how the lightning speed of the digital revolution had effectively rendered my generation, Generation X, culturally obsolete before we even got old. It was about how even within my own generational and ideological cohort, long-standing friendships were coming apart because of seemingly minor disagreements within issues on which we were generally in complete agreement. Writing this book was excruciating. I would estimate that for every page that actually made it into the book, five, maybe ten other pages went into the wastebasket. In the end, the book was a little over 200 pages and took nearly three years. The news cycle was moving so fast that much of the time I felt like I was playing a game of whack-a-mole. With every cultural interruption, the book had to recalibrate itself. In the second year of writing it, Me Too happened. In the third year, the concept of cancel culture stretched out like a tarp along the grounds of all these new culture wars. Since the word woke had already been weaponized into a blunt instrument used for hand-to-hand combat against the equally blunt instrument of social justice extremism, I avoided using it in earnest. Though I admit, for a long time, 
the working title of my book was Woke Me When It's Over. By the time the book finally came out, just over a year ago, in the end, as you may know, the title was The Problem With Everything, I was being told I was about to be canceled too, or that I'd already been canceled. Some people offered consolations for being canceled. Others congratulated me. In every case, the point was moot. I had plainly not been canceled. I was still walking the earth, still getting paid to write stuff, still teaching, still talking, still standing. When the now infamous Harper's letter came around last spring, and that was a public statement about new strangleholds on free speech that was signed by more than 150 artists, writers, scholars, and scientists, I happily accepted the invitation to sign it. And not just because I was among the least famous on a list that included the likes of Salman Rushdie and Noam Chomsky. I signed it because, like most of the signatories, I'm lucky enough to be able to keep saying what I want to say, even if they did come to cancel me, whoever they are, and whatever cancel would mean. In my case, it's not because I'm rich and famous, but because I've essentially never had a job. At least I've never had just one job. My bread has always been buttered from any number of different knives, if that's how that idiom works. And while this has often made my life difficult financially, mentally, even socially, it also now means that I don't have to go along to get along. I can continue to do the kind of work that made me want to get into the business of ideas in the first place. I can continue to engage with surprising lines of inquiry rather than predictable ones. I can try ideas on for size, wrestle with them, poke at them, really sit with them without necessarily coming to any hard conclusions. I can continue to do what I've done from the moment I began to find my groove as a writer. Thanks to many of those authors, some of my students now won't read and invite my readers to think alongside me as I sort through my thoughts. And here's what I'm really getting at here. Extending that invitation means trusting your audience. It means trusting them to take your message in good faith, to give you the benefit of the doubt, to exercise a degree of intellectual imagination, to understand what the hell you're saying. I think many audiences can do this, probably just as many as ever could, maybe more. The problem, however, is that some collection of forces out there seems to have stopped trusting audiences. I say collection of forces because I don't want to pin the blame on the gatekeepers on the editors, the publishers, the curators of film festivals, media producers, the executives. Those people, for the most part, are trying to do their jobs in the ways that have become necessary to hold on to those jobs. I don't even want to pin all the blame on the college-level humanities professors who are misapplying intersectional theory in ways that force students to see everything in art and life according to a fundamentally narcissistic interpretation of power differentials though I blame them a little, maybe more than a little. For the most part, though, I can't help but see this crisis in our discourse, and I do think it's a crisis, as a kind of cognitive kidnapping. Being at the mercy of algorithms, we've all become conspiracy theorists in one way or another. We're being held hostage by our own hyperbole. As I wrote in The Problem With Everything, we've given into a culture in which narcissism is affirmed with clicks and likes, and then reaffirmed in direct proportion to its alliance with in-group thinking. We're raising the next generation to fear its most original thoughts. Woke me when it's over, indeed. So, is it over now? Obviously not. We may be about to have a new president, 
but it's a near guarantee that just about all of the old problems, including the ongoing insistence from some corners that everything is problematic, will continue. We won't be able to hang it all on Trump, but there will be plenty of other sources of outrage to choose from. In the scant 48 hours since the election was called, I've seen the mood on my social media feeds begin to fall in on itself. First, there was unmitigated jubilation. Then there were sober reminders that Republicans had actually won most of the state and local elections. Then the Democratic Socialists began scolding people for being happy about electing another neoliberal shill. As for people on the right, I have no idea what they were doing. My algorithm showed me none of them. Oh, and some of the people in that no-man's land of so-called heterodox thought, people I often turn to in an effort to preserve my own sanity, they've wandered into a territory where I sometimes literally cannot understand what they're saying. I'm not sure whose fault this is. Probably mine. But this happens more and more these days. For the last few years, it's like the more I read and think about things, the less I understand. That's the biggest cliche in the world. The more you learn, the less you know. Okay. But I can tell you that after 25 years in the professional thinking business, after writing more quote-unquote think pieces than I'd care to even try to count, I simply don't know what to think anymore. I could tell you how I feel a lot of the time. Confused, tired, annoyed with myself for being so annoyed with others. But like I said, feelings are only part of the story. And honestly, I doubt my feelings are of much interest to the outside world. When you publicly express your feelings without attaching them to coherent thought, you have, well, Twitter. So this brings me to why I'm here, and why you're here, if you're still listening to this. I started this podcast in part because I was tired of talking all the time. I wanted to hear other people talk. I wanted to take the subjects that interested me and find the exact right people to talk about them. There's been very little talk about Donald Trump so far on this show, and I hope to keep it that way, at least within reason. And as much as the subject of cancel culture may have come up, I'd submit to you that, if nothing else, this show is designed to help forge a path away from that subject. Believe me, I want to cancel cancel culture as much as anyone. But I really think that the best way to do that, the only way to do that, is to stop talking about cancel culture and just be part of the culture. Say the thing you want to say. Write the book. Make the film. Paint the painting. Curate the exhibit. Program the Ideas Festival with the guests you really want. Teach the books you want to teach. If you are in any kind of position to say what you want to say without losing your livelihood, without causing your family to starve, to really starve, just say it. For every would-be canceler out there, there are infinite numbers of people who want to live in a culture of authentic expression. Trust me on this. You should see the mail I get. People want progress. They want the world to change for the better. They want to live in a world that openly reckons with its failures and injustices. But they also want to be part of an audience that can be trusted to understand what is being offered to them. They want the artists and thinkers and cultural arbiters in their midst to know that they get it. So I'm going to conclude here by thanking you for getting it. Thank you for letting my guests speak. Thank you for accepting my invitation to think alongside my guests and me as we talk about stuff. I'm also going to tell you that I'm putting the show on a brief hiatus while I catch up with some of my uh, real work. Chances are the show won't be back until the first of the year, but I promise you it will be back. 
I love doing this even more than I thought I would. But as you've heard me say before, it's a one-woman endeavor. And in order to keep it going, I got to keep the rest of my ship afloat as well. As always, feel free to write me with suggestions for guests, topics, or anything else. If you liked this monologue, let me know. If you hated it, don't worry. I have no plans to do another one. But I so appreciate your being with me, both today and over these last few months. And here's the part where I say you can leave a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. You can financially support the podcast on its Patreon page, patreon.com slash the unspeakable. I can't wait to come back and be with you next year. And in the meantime, I wish you a happy, safe, and sane holiday season. See you next time. Hi, I'm Frank. I don't like change. And I just saw a billboard for this new BJ's Wholesale Club talking about how you could pay as little as two cents a gallon for gas. Look, when gas prices are this low, we can't complain about gas prices being too high. No, sir. I wouldn't join BJ's Wholesale Club. Hey, thanks, Frank. But if you do want to sign up now for ridiculously low gas prices, join the new BJ's Wholesale Club, opening soon in South Fayette. Visit BJ's.com slash South Fayette or the BJ's Membership Center at Newbury Market. If you're struggling with alcohol or drugs, Recovery Centers of America can help. RCA's local inpatient and outpatient programs are founded on science and delivered with heart from an expert, caring team who will inspire and guide you every step of the way. Call 1-888-RECOVERY now to speak with a treatment advisor. At RCA, you'll be in a community that builds connections and fosters support from peers and RCA's team of medical professionals and recovery support specialists. At RCA's state-of-the-art campus, in Monroeville, Pennsylvania, they tailor your treatment to you and also offer specialized programs like PRIZE, a unique program for people who have been in recovery but have relapsed. Here, you won't have to start from step one. You'll build off the knowledge you've previously acquired in treatment and focus on the areas of your recovery that need improvement. RCA answers the phone and accepts patients 24-7 and is in network with most major insurance providers. Don't wait. Call 1-888-RECOVERY today. That's 1-888-RECOVERY.